Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about whose life this is. Before I get into heavy material today, I want to make a quick, short, inappropriate conversation-style year in review. There were a few things in 2012, which has just passed us, which were new for me and very good for me. And the only category I really want to discuss is podcasting. If you listened to episode 100 of Inappropriate Conversations, I already cited some of these shows, which I've only recently begun listening to, or at least one year ago today I wasn't listening to. But I will cite them again today in no particular order, just as a way of saying there's still good material being produced, in some cases, relatively new podcasts being produced that are worth the time. In that list, I'd include Greetings from Nowhere, Secretly Timid, Geek Fights, Game Night Guys, and Sex Nerd Sandra. Those are all shows that I wasn't listening to a year ago today, but I will be listening to from this point forward. Many of these shows... Greetings from Nowhere, for example, are available on Stitcher. In fact, the first episode of Game Night Guys I ever listened to was on Stitcher. Stitcher is a good way to listen to music, news, and inappropriate conversations. It's one of the many ways to interact with inappropriate conversations. And I'll just quickly, out of the way, right up front, start the new year with a quick list of how you can interact with this show. The website for Inappropriate Conversations is www.inappropriateconversations.org. Show notes are enabled there for comments to any of the episodes that are posted. I also have a Facebook page that I started quite some time ago, so there's a pretty good history in the timeline there, whether you like timeline or not, simply under the name Inappropriate Conversations. Mine is the one that's listed as a cause. I'm also now on Twitter. You can interact with me there at IC underscore Greg. The kinds of things I tweet about would not be a surprise if you've listened to a lot of inappropriate conversations. My interests are fairly wide and varied, so it wouldn't be a shock if you encountered a tweet related to sports, music, movies, popular culture, politics, and especially religion. One of the more difficult concepts in religion is this notion of whose life is it anyway? Who gets to decide things about the end of life? Or, you know, from previous episodes, I've hit some of the topics related to the beginning of life. I will no doubt hit that again at some future time. But I've pushed this topic of euthanasia or assisted suicide or living wills or all those sort of concepts off until now. That is an indication that I perhaps don't have the strongest, most firmly entrenched position to take on this matter. Or that maybe when you look at all the possible you know, issues related to matters of life and death, this is the one that I either feel the least passionately about, or maybe I have the most subtle, unspoken fears about. Hard to say. But the question is nevertheless a legitimate one. And usually, when I have this conversation about power and control, the authority to decide when I'm throwing in the towel, or when someone's deciding that I'm done, is you know a conversation with Christians that leads to this notion that that authority belongs solely to God. That we are God's and decisions about life and death must be left up to him. We're going to talk a little bit today about why that's a bit of a naive point of view. 
But let me first begin just with the core philosophical notion there, because I'm willing to stipulate as a Christian that these decisions of life and death are God's. I'm also willing to say that we often are placed in a position of having to make those decisions by proxy. So if it comes to the notion of who has God entrusted with these decisions, who is he expecting above all others to keep you alive? Who has that responsibility? And whoever has the responsibility on a daily basis, really truthfully, by minute, by second, by millisecond basis, to keep you alive, that same person just like the two sides of a coin, has the same authority over life and death decisions that impact you. And although almost all of us are going to live our lives from the bias of trying to stay alive and you know, hit or miss trying to stay well and alive, it is true that if you have been given the authority, if God has entrusted you with the right to keep yourself living or the responsibility to keep yourself living, that means you also have the responsibility about end-of-life decisions. You see, the answer to who has been entrusted with these life or death decisions, it can't be no one. And from this earthly perspective, from this mortal coils perspective, I don't want to say that God is no one, but it has to be somebody who is here, somebody who is walking in your shoes. It has to be you. Now, before I go further into this, I feel the need to make a distinction that I'm not going to dwell on. This is the first Inappropriate Conversations for this topic, and if you've listened to uh, Inappropriate Conversations from the past or from the beginning, you'll know that often I'll, I'll hit a topic that I'm going to come back to later from multiple angles or in a great more deal of detail by first just hitting it at a higher level, or in some cases even just answering questions. In the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, I dealt in back-to-back weeks with an introduction to abortion and an introduction to homosexual rights and almost spent the entire show just asking questions, just getting started. And one of the questions that I'm going to dodge for now is this notion of the conceptual difference between euthanasia as a concept and assisted suicide. Part of that is because I don't want to muddy the waters. So again, the first time I spoke about you know non-heterosexual rights, I left bisexuality out of the mix completely, just to keep things as simple as possible, to get 10,000 feet in the air and look at things from a very high level. And that's the same thing I'm trying to do here. But it's also not as if this particular concept hasn't been covered reasonably well in recent months via podcasts. National Public Radio releases podcast cuts of the NPR show Fresh Air. And recently, October 9th, 2012, in fact, Terry Gross interviewed Judith Schwartz, and she spoke specifically to this issue and some of the concepts related to the differences and the important differences between assisted suicide and euthanasia. But it helps my purpose not to make that distinction for now, to leave things a little bit blurry, and just to talk about all life-ending decisions from a very simple perspective. But note, I'm not going to talk about all life-ending decisions as if they're equal. Are they equal? This, I think, is the mistake that we get from the pro-life community and from the Roman Catholic perspective in particular, where these issues are lumped together. And when you hear an archbishop or even the pope speak to these matters, they're speaking as if abortion and euthanasia were somehow the same thing, that they were cut from the same cloth. And I think we've got a very different situation on our hands. And the mistake that's made is the presumption that all life is the same, 
that the concept of life is homogenous and that end-of-life decisions are therefore all equally valid. They may be equally sad and tragic in the sense that somebody who was on this earth is now no longer with us, or that in the case of a capital punishment situation, somebody who's been removed from this earth, the circumstances that led to that kind of punishment being meted out, sad and tragic. But I've had experience in this area with a clear distinction that can be made between what happens when you're dealing with an end-of-life decision that is truly and genuinely health-related and what you do with an end-of-life decision that is dealing with an otherwise healthy individual. And I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of animals. When I grew up, we only had one dog for a very short period of time. I would not describe her as a good dog. Um, I didn't bond with her. I had a cat that was deemed by the family to be my cat, and I was quite happy with that. And so the experience that I had with a dog in the house was very short-lived. My wife, on the other hand, when we met, had never had a cat in the house, and had always had dogs. And when we got married, the very first thing we decided, one of the first decisions, was that we did love pets. We wanted to delay for a while, in fact, quite a while, having children, and that the best way to handle the differences in our upbringing was for one of us to get a dog and the other one to get a cat. So essentially, to bring both animals simultaneously into the home. And the best way to handle it, and maybe some of this was on purpose, maybe the, there was luck in the decision-making, but it turned out the best way to handle it was for us to bring both pets into the home at the very same time as quickly to one another as possible so that neither animal felt like it was intruding on another one's space, neither animal felt like it had a territorial claim against the other one because we didn't know how well a, a puppy and a kitten were going to get along to begin with. And my thought was, well, I'm the cat lover, so when we bring this cat into the house, it's probably going to end up being my cat. And my wife being the dog lover, you know, the same thing for her. But I think anybody who's allergic to cats has probably seen this phenomenon, because I've seen it a lot. It's not at all uncommon that somehow a cat just sort of knows that if, you know, 20 people come over to a party and one of them is allergic, it's the one person who's allergic that the cat wants to spend most of its time with. It's like there's a radar that it knows which legs to rub up against. And I have a psychological theory about it that, of course, probably can't be proven because it's a pet. But my theory is that the animal somehow on some instinctive level understands who it has to win over, where the challenge is, where the difficulty is. And it wasn't like either one of these pets that this newlywed couple brought into their home was in any you know, danger of being shunned. But all the same, the cat really connected itself to my wife, and the dog very much connected herself to me. And if you'd come along and seen our little family six months later, it would have been reasonable for you to make the assumption that I had chosen the dog as my own pet and that my wife had chosen the cat as hers. But it turned out to be the opposite. And this was the beginning of a great 11 and a half year relationship with these animals. They got along with each other fabulously. I think a lot of it was the idea that neither one of them felt like it was, quote-unquote, their house first. Also, the disposition of the animals were wonderful. When we eventually had kids and brought them home, the dog, in particular, had a very maternal instinct about our children, and even innocent roughhousing, you know, like letting a kid ride on your back or holding a kid around your neck. The dog would, would uh, bark and holler and, and just to let you know she was, a, she was our no-roughhousing dog. She would not tolerate raised voices toward kids. She didn't like you know, any displays of anger whatsoever. And she didn't like anybody playing rough with the kids. So 
the day that this dog became too ill to function was one of the saddest days of my life. We had moved into a new home in a new city, and somewhere along the way, within that first maybe year of living in that city, if even that long, we had at one point let her out. She had broken, you know, kind of uh, free from where we were standing and got herself skunked. My theory is that in the process of getting herself skunked, something must, that must have been where she kind of took the health turn. I don't know whether it was the stress of the event or whether she contracted something actually in her eyes because she kind of got it in the face. She didn't get a, as much skunked as she could have, frankly, considering the circumstances. But it was only just a couple of weeks later that she began to show health problems. And it was only a couple of months later that she was uh, pretty much in full-on liver failure and unable to really stand for any extended periods of time. The home we lived in was a quad, so there were four or five steps to get anywhere in the house. To get down to the basement was a handful of steps. Up to the kitchen was a handful of steps. The bedroom was even more steps. And she reached the point where she was really unable to feed herself. You know, we'd talked to the doctor before. She'd seen the doctor before, and we knew that there was nothing we could do. That this came on, to us anyway, suddenly, quickly, and fatally. But what happens when you're dealing with the fatal end-of-life decision on a dog is you're taking the animal to the vet to be put to sleep. Now, my experiences with dogs and cats dying are fairly limited. You know, most of the animal that I grew up with, I was either too young to be part of that, you know, end-of-life decision or, you know, an animal I passed away when I was in college or something. I, this is the first time I personally needed to hold a dog in my arms f during those final moments for literally a lethal injection, what we would call an assisted suicide if we're going to make the analogy to somebody who is suffering and unable to function in any meaningful way at the end of facing a hideous terminal illness. Now, the reason I bring this animal up in a topic that I might describe as the dogs of my lifetime is because we eventually got another dog. Same breed, different disposition. And not being, again, perhaps I, I blame myself to some degree because I don't feel like I was the best dog owner. I've had three dogs now. Two of those relationships have been great. But part of it is what does the animal bring to it? Because we found pretty quickly that this dog had such a strong type A personality and essentially an antisocial bent that we, you know, that we figured out on the ride home that this was going to be a very difficult animal to handle. It was, she was quite the opposite in terms of how she dealt with the kids. She viewed herself as chief dog in the litter and both of my children as younger dogs in the litter. The you know, breed by nature is a, is a herding dog. So they tend to control people, steer things, guide things, uh, a shepherding sort of a role. But in this case, it was much more domineering than that. And we were aware of the problem. We took the dog to uh, school to, to have obedience training. I went with her to, to learn my part of the obedience training. We really went through a lot of steps to try to control the environment. And what we found was because the dog was so aggressive around food that it was just an excruciating journey, even to get to where she could function obediently in a make-it-leave-it sort of command situation. And when you introduce new people to the house, that added a level of chaos where a lot of times people would come over to visit, either for dinner or for a party. The best thing to do was to remove the animal to another part of the house, to leave her in the basement, to leave her in a bedroom, to not have her around. 
because her behavior would get markedly worse when people would come over to visit. Well, one day, people came over to visit. We had the in-laws over. We were watching a football game. A pizza was ordered. People were having a good time. It was as much of a good time as I can have because the game that we were watching is the biggest rivalry game that I have in my sports fandom. As chance would have it, there was a moment of a controversial call during the game with multiple people sort of raising voices and calling out to the TV screen and you know, anxious to see the instant replay. And at that moment, my young, early elementary school-aged son reached for a piece of pizza off his plate at the same time that the dog was apparently planning to steal it. The dog followed the pizza to my son's face and bit him severely enough that it required stitches to deal with. The animal was immediately removed from the situation and shut in the basement. And the, the miracle in this situation was that in this moment of what I would only describe as anger, perhaps even rage, that no harm was done to the dog at that time. That this animal that had been a, a source of frustration and difficult to control had now done what we thought at the time might have been even severe harm to my son. My wife and her father took him to the hospital, leaving me, his hysterical sister, behind to deal with the dog. At that point in time, we dealt with the dog by just leaving it in the basement. But we quickly realized that once an animal like this, especially one that's been hard to handle, has done harm of that nature to somebody, once it's a biter, once it's done that kind of damage, no one wants to provide a shelter for it. There are no other options for the animal. You can't put it up for adoption at that point. You've missed the mark. And do you keep it in your home? Our decision was that we could not keep this animal in our home anymore, that it had crossed a line that could not be overlooked, and that the next time this dog bit somebody, if there was a next time, we would in some ways be much more liable and responsible for the act than we were, then this coming to us is a moment of surprise. We knew we had an aggressive animal. We were trying our best to try to get it under control. But the second time an animal like that does harm to somebody, it's a much greater evil. You had an opportunity to do something about it. You chose not to, right? And what if the next time the animal bit somebody and hurt somebody badly, it wasn't one of us? It was some stranger. No, we ended up taking that dog to the veterinarian as well. Was there some sort of drug treatment program that we could do? Was there some sort of an aggressive step we could take? And the decision was made that this was a dangerous animal. Maybe not a dangerous animal if we'd found a farm to take it somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, but a dangerous animal inside our home. And that animal was put to sleep as well. So you have two dogs. One of them, essentially what we might describe of as, a, as a euthanasia, as an end-of-life health-related suicide. And the other one, more or less an act of capital punishment. In the first instance, it was perhaps the single saddest day of my life. I did not make it to my father's bedside or my sister's bedside in time to be there holding their hands in that last moment of life when a fatal illness overtook them. But in this case, I was standing there with a dog in my arms who was fatally ill, and I was there for the last minute. And it was more than I could take, to be honest with you. When the other dog was put down, uh, I, we use these terms, put to sleep, put down, they're you know, euphemisms for euthanasia is what they are. But when that second one was put down, it was on some level an act of judgment. It was an act of capital punishment. I felt bad about it, of course. I felt like we'd done almost everything we could possibly do. I didn't think, I couldn't think of anything else we could try that we hadn't tried. 
but you still feel like on some level that you failed, but that this animal had now harmed my son. Now, the good news is if you didn't know this story, you looked at my son today, you'd have no idea. So credit medical science for that. But when I tell the stories of these two dogs, not to in any way curry pity, but to explain the fact that I understand the difference between both of those very similar events. In each case, you're going to a veterinarian with a dog, you're leaving without the dog. And in each case, the dog who is alive when you walk in and would otherwise have been alive if you just waited five minutes and walked out instead of seeking a procedure. In one case, the dog's dead because its health was going to give out and it was going to be painful and probably slow. The other case, it was an otherwise healthy dog. A dog that was perfectly capable of overpowering and seriously injuring a first grader. So, I guess what I'm saying is, all life-ending decisions are not equal. Those two situations did not feel equal to me. I was sad at both of them. But in one case, I was sad about the inability to intervene and make a difference in a health situation. And in the other case, I was feeling a combination of sadness and guilt over the fact that I'd run out of options and there was no other way to deal with an untenable situation. It didn't feel the same because it wasn't the same. Compare this, though, to the case of Terry Schiavo. Again, not a situation where I'm going to go into a lot of detail, but there were a lot of Americans who went from not having any idea who this woman was or what her story was to a week later or even a couple of days later due to network news coverage and other publicity her being the name and face of euthanasia. Now, for those who don't remember, it was you know more than a decade ago now that her husband decided that in her case, having been in a vegetative state for close to a decade, I think Black believes after a heart attack, after a health accident, and seeing x-rays that clearly indicated that her, her brain situation was not normal, that she had lost functionality. She was definitely going to stay in a persistent vegetative state. And the doctors, plural, not just one doctor, had seen enough information to know that keeping her on the feeding tube was maintaining the functioning of a body that otherwise, by human standards, could have been described as lifeless. Certainly by brain or mental standards would have been more than just unresponsive, but lifeless. Her parents were opposed to this and really wanted her husband to divorce her because their point of view was that if he was going to pull the plug and they didn't want that, if he divorced her, then they would take over custody. There was some accusations that, that there was money from a medical settlement or a legal settlement that was available to be inherited, and that was his reason for wanting to pull the plug. But it was probably equally their reason because they would not just inherit the right to make life or death decisions. They would also take control of her estate at the same time. So there's bias going on in both directions. My question here is not to pass judgment on anybody who made a decision one way or the other in the Terry Schiavo case, other than to perhaps raise some questions about people who knew nothing about the case and then suddenly were, were passionate about it. I always, in my mind, had a bit of an emotional distance because at the end of the day, I hadn't walked in John Schiavo's shoes and I didn't want to. I hadn't walked in her parents' shoes and I didn't want to. I certainly wasn't going to use her as the poster child to try to draw some connection from a pro-life perspective between an end-of-life decision and a beginning-of-life decision and try to roll abortion and euthanasia into one big picture. That certainly was the perspective of what I would describe most of the religious approach to the issue was. I personally didn't feel like I had a standing to take an approach in the issue at all. 
But when the situation was finally resolved, more than a decade had gone by with her being in a persistent vegetative state. But what if we weren't talking about 10 years or 15 years? What if we're talking about 80 years? What if medical science had advanced to such a degree? And anybody who has made a living will decision, one way or the other, has examined this possibility, unless they made a decision against a living will and done so somewhat irresponsibly and in a knee-jerk form. If you've truly looked at the issue and decided where you stand on a question of living will, you've asked yourself this. What if medical science suddenly has the ability to keep you alive after your brain is long since dead for 80 years, 100 years, 200 years? Do you keep the machines running after everyone who ever knew her is gone? How do we just keep the machines running forever? And how exactly is arbitrarily keeping a body alive where the mind is gone? How exactly is that consistent with a Christian worldview? You know, the idea in Christianity is that a human being is a body-soul unity, and when the mind is gone, absent the body, home with Christ, what good does it do to keep the body part running for want of a better word, if you believe as a Christian that the soul is with God? Or do you believe that the mind and the soul have nothing to do with each other? And how do you handle that? I mean, where's the soul? Inside the heart that had the heart attack? Or somewhere else? The Shivo case, and others like it, had a complexity. And that complexity was represented by the fact that there wasn't necessarily a good living will in place. There wasn't really a lot of clarity on what the person would want. And more being a, a matter of euthanasia than assisted suicide, you didn't necessarily, necessarily have the consent of the individual. It's not like we can make a claim that Terry Shivo was definitely and affirmatively making her own end-of-life decision. And of course, a lot of that is that by all accounts, she was long gone. So I want to quickly share with you an article that a friend from England named Shane shared from the Times of London. This is almost a year now, so if you share with me something at uh, ic underscore greg at hotmail.com, I'll receive your email. It may take me a while to get around to reacting to it. It has, by the way, been more than a year since I've done any points and questions show. I'm on your P's and Q's too. I haven't gotten around to a third one yet. But I will share this article that was originally published in The Times in London by columnist Melanie Reed. She is listed in the article as being a tetraplegic. In America, we might understand that concept more as quadriplegic. Same idea. And the words that I'm going to share here for the next few minutes will be hers. When asked about assisted suicide, I tend to pause and take a deep breath. You really want to know what I think? From the vantage point of a severely crippled body? Honestly? I find it ridiculous that an educated society facing an unaffordable explosion in dementia and age-related illness is prevaricating over this issue. It is, for me, almost inconceivable that the law lags so many decades behind modern realities and is so out of step with the feelings of the vast majority of the population. Where is the democracy surrounding death? The fact is simply this. Because of a religious minority and a few antediluvian pressure groups and the might of modern medicine, we are condemning growing numbers of elderly, terminally ill, or disabled people to a terrible, lingering twilight, rather than a good death in the circumstances of their choosing. And we are condemning the people who want to assist them with the threat of criminal prosecution. This is a scandal. I will be very blunt. Most mornings, I contemplate suicide. 
briefly examining the concept in a detached, intellectual way. It's always during the hour when I am sitting on my shower chair over the loo, leaning forward over my purple, paralyzed feet, fighting nausea and lightheadedness, sore bones, and paralyzed bowels. This, without intending to sound self-pitying, is the worst bit in the day of the life of a tetraplegic. And every day I stare at my toes and say to myself, Nope, gotta keep going, gotta keep fighting. Because I choose, fiercely, to live for the people who love me, and will continue to do so until such point as they understand I cannot carry on. I hope that moment, if or when it comes, is many years away. But you know, sometimes, just sometimes, I get angry enough to wish that a few bishops, palliative care specialists, and those dedicated campaigners from Care Not Killing, ha, what amazing arrogance lurks in a name, were in my skin, sitting in my shower chair, facing my future. Knowing that I have a choice is a huge comfort to me. It sustains me on the days when I make the mistake of looking too far in the future. There are many other people who, because of their illness or disability, do not have this possibility of self-determination. Their right to choose is denied to them. They need help to escape their imprisonment, and they want to know that their family or friends will not be punished for assisting them to die. Reed has more to say. I've skipped around. But I think it's important that we take in the perspective of somebody who is facing that situation. Again, I have seen firsthand... I've been an eyewitness in the room at the difference between an end-of-life decision that would be described as merciful and an end-of-life decision that would be described as punishment. It is not the same thing. These questions of you know, right to life makes a judgment and a false judgment that all end-of-life situations are equal, that all life journeys are equal, that all life courses are equal. And it's a mistake that belittles the loss of life. Now, I don't want to do the same thing myself. Uh, I don't want to refer to my own experience and be coldly indifferent or robotic here. But I think that's exactly what you see when people talk about life decisions as if there's some sort of either or choice to be made. The reality is each one of us has been given a responsibility and authority. We've been trusted with a life that is ours. We've been taught if not by our conscience and our parents or maybe our religion, to use that authority wisely. If that authority doesn't include the decision at the very end, if that authority doesn't include the ultimate negation, was it real all along? At what point do you say, yes, I know somebody who has seen horrific loss of life from someone that he loved, someone that deteriorated over a long and painful period of time, if that individual's perspective on end-of-life decisions is different now than it was 20 years ago, I understand why. I would call on all of my fellow conservatives to offer that same understanding. I realize I do so as a political moderate, but maybe you almost have to be a political moderate to look into the eyes of both of these kinds of end-of-life situations and reconcile your relationship with the decisions that others are making, or in my case, decisions that were completely and totally up to me.
is an easy and obvious reason why I've chosen Reba McIntyre as the different drummer for this particular episode. Perhaps more than anyone else in modern country music, I believe that Reba McIntyre has a good understanding of what end of life, sudden end of life, is like. And we'll get to that in just a moment. First, as a country singer, raised by a rodeo father and a singing mother in Oklahoma, her journey to the point where I was interested in her as a country musician was a long one. As somebody who lived in that part of the country at the time that her career started, I was familiar with Reba McIntyre. It wasn't hard to, you know, to see her name if you, you know, just strolled through the country music section. In states like Kansas and Oklahoma and Missouri, she was a popular singer. But I wasn't interested in the style of music that she was initially recording, whether it be in the um, in the pop urban cowboy vein or the initial part of her new traditionalist vein. It was a piece of country music that didn't necessarily work for me. I've spoken about my record store experience in the past and my relationship with country music being very targeted and specific. I am not a country fan and that I would love anything and everything that has the right combination of chords or the right use of fiddle. I've got a, a narrow band, in other words, but... Reba McIntyre wasn't initially on that list. I had come to appreciate the albums that she'd put out in the late 80s and early 90s. I think she'd found herself and found her stride after making the transition from Mercury Records to MCA Records. But it wasn't until the album For My Broken Heart that I was on board. I had heard the record before it, rumor has it, and had found enough things about that that I liked that even on my MP3 player today, I've got songs from Rumor Has It that are on the player. But... The real turning point for me, and really for Reba McIntyre, happened on March 16, 1991. Coming back from a private concert on two different planes, one of the planes carrying you know, eight members of her band went down in a crash, not far from San Diego, California. The other plane was unharmed. It's not clear to me from stories I've read whether Reba McIntyre was on either plane. Wikipedia seems to indicate that she may have been in a hotel room that night and had not traveled yet with the band. The quote I'm seeing says the news was reported nearly immediately to McIntyre and her husband, who were sleeping in a nearby hotel. A spokeswoman for McIntyre at the time stated in the Los Angeles Times that she was very close to all of them. Some of them had been with her for years. Reba is totally devastated by this. It's like losing a part of your family. Right now, she just wants to get, to get back to Nashville. She did get back to Nashville, and I, as a you know somebody working in a record store, initially wondered whether we would see another album from Reba McIntyre for quite some time. Now, it's not that big of a challenge for a popular country music singer to find the necessary support you need in you know session musicians and studio musicians to put together you know another backing band, especially just for a studio recording. But my thought was, what in the world is she going to sing when she does get back to the point? of putting out an album. And the album that she put out is one of the most profound albums for those dealing with loss I have ever heard. Any music style, any music genre, there is no better album than For My Broken Heart. Now, of course, it's a country album. So, you know, don't go into it expecting to hear something that crosses genre and breaks all the, <laughs> breaks all the rules. But in some ways, it broke rules in ways that certainly surprised me. On www.allmusic.com, writer Brian Mansfield describes it this way. Throughout the album, McIntyre dwells on regrets, unvoiced feelings, missed chances. 
the best songs are the hits for my broken heart and is there life out there but a group of evocative story songs which unfold slowly leaving loose threads and developing complex emotional undercurrents it really runs throughout the album I would disagree with Mansfield. There's nothing wrong with those first two songs on the CD, the first two singles from the album. But for me, when I look at the For My Broken Heart recording, which I just tend to put on and listen to end to end, it's not like there's, there's, songs I, there's not songs I skip here. The weakest effort on the album is the remake, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. It's not like the, you know, the song that was a hit for Vicki Lawrence fails to fit in with the otherwise you know pervasive themes of missed opportunities and lost chances and and death and dying it does but it pulls me out of the album ever so slightly because it's familiar everything else was songs that were completely new to me where the storytelling coming from reba seemed like she was telling her own story even though she's only listed as a songwriter songwriting credit really a co-credit on one song now, for me, the, the ending track, If I Had Only Known, seems to speak directly to her lost bandmates. And The Greatest Man I Never Knew is, frankly, devastating in its beauty, but also in its critique of being a distant father. Reba McIntyre's recorded a, an album that simultaneously would be the single most inappropriate song to play in the background at a suicide counseling center but also one of the most cathartic and meaningfully helpful songs in times in my life when I have had to reconcile or deal with unexpected death, with tragedy, and even with end-of-life decisions. feel like from a different drummer perspective i've maybe sold reba a little bit short it's not like she didn't do very good albums from that point forward and there's this period of time from you know maybe 89 to 95 when the output that she put onto cd was the best of her career but i wanted to segue a little more quickly out of the different drummer segment and into the one song on that cd for my broken heart that she co-wrote working with an established really songwriting superstar named don schlitz she wrote the song Bobby on the album For My Broken Heart. Now, before I get to the lyrics of that, which I think will make an immediate, obvious connection to our topic today, it seems like it's only appropriate to talk a little bit about Schlitz. He is by far a well-known country music songwriter. First, perhaps having his first big moment on the scene with Kenny Rogers' The Gambler. So you know when you're dealing with that, you've got something. He also wrote the song Forever and Ever Amen, actually co-wrote it with with country singer Paul Overstreet. It was a hit for Randy Travis, and you know, Schlitz would go on to do a lot more work with Paul Overstreet. Just to get a sense of the credentials that Schlitz brings to that side of the co-writing, I'm just going to rattle off a few of the songs, which I think many of us, even those who only have a casual feel for country music, would recognize. In addition to Forever and Ever Amen for Randy Travis, Deeper Than a Holler was one of the songs. For Paul Overstreet, Ball and Chain, Daddy's Come Around, and my personal favorite from Paul Overstreet, If I Bottle This Up. For Mary Chapin Carpenter, uh, the big hit for her, I Feel Lucky, also the song He Thinks He'll Keep Her. Colin Ray is an artist about which I have distinctly mixed feelings. I've credited him as having one of the worst country songs I've ever heard in my life, and excuse moi my heart, from his debut album. But a few albums later, 
the song I Think About You is the title track of Colin Ray's best album. And it's one of Colin Ray's best songs, in this case, you know, written by Don Schlitz. And finally, again, even a casual fan of country music would immediately recognize the song When You Say Nothing At All, performed by Keith Whitley, later covered, famously covered by Alison Krauss in Union Station. You know, so in pairing up with Don Schlitz, Reba McIntyre chose great talent to deal with her feelings of, of sadness and loss and regret. One of the songs about regret that she put on that album is a song called Bobby. Here are a few of the lyrics. Bobby pleaded guilty to the charges that they read. As they led him from the courtroom, a young voice turned his head. A little boy dressed in blue was standing at the rail. He said, I hope they kill you. I hope you go to hell. They put Bobby in a jail with 40 other men. They all knew what he had done. They were glad to take him in. They'd all seen the headlines about Bobby and his wife, how they loved each other, and how he took her life. The little boy, dressed up in blue, grew up to be a man. And when he fell in love himself, he came to understand how it was that Bobby had took the life they both adored because Bobby couldn't stand to see her suffer anymore. He took out the papers from the trunk beneath his bed, and all the years just disappeared as through his tears he read the stories of the accident that robbed his mama's mind and the man who held her in his arms and chose to cut the line. There are more lyrics, but I won't share more of them. And I also won't share a clip. This is my favorite Reba McIntyre song. And if you only download one song by her in your entire lifetime, this may be a good one. It's certainly an excellent example of the kind of social issues that she was addressing in a part of the music business that wasn't really all that interested in exploring controversial issues. And she recorded it in 1991, literally months after losing eight very good friends and collaborators in a plane crash. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. Who is God entrusted with this life you're living? Isn't it you? If you don't believe in God, then obviously you've got to believe in yourself. It's all you have. Who have you trusted with your life? It's not just that you've been you know, placed in the final position of authority and control over your own life. You have placed your life in the hands of others, whether you realize it or not. Parents, spouses, and other people who love you. This is hard stuff. This is painful stuff. Certain memories are frankly debilitating. But the issue itself isn't as difficult to decide as we make it out. There's a question that has to be answered when we're looking at these issues, as uncomfortable as they make it. And that question is this, whose life is it anyway? If it is not yours to make even a bad decision about, then whose? If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
she watched Empire, she would want to watch Jedi. The way that Lucas planned it, um, Star Wars A New Hope was supposed to be able to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. And so it does have a conclusion. That's why we you know, chose... It's not like watching Fellowship yeah. of the Ring where you're like, oh, I just sat here for three hours yeah. and this stupid <laughs> story just started. <laughs> it's not stupid. I know, I know. Of course it's not stupid. I love it. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. 